Um, hi, Mackie. Hello? Can you hear us, Matthew? Papa, can you hear me? <laughs> well, it looks like he's, um, he might just be muted. He said BLB. to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and with me is my very good friend Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Great, thanks. How are you, Ewan? I'm really well, thank you. This is going to be another fantastic episode, jam-packed with uh, all the latest news from across Europe. We're going to be hearing from our colleague, our new colleague at Europolex, Philip Rodnick. He's going to be talk talking to us about the upcoming regional elections in Russia and a brand new segment as well, looking back at some of the most famous elections you might never have heard of. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. It's actually really cool. We've been speaking to um, a lot of experts, right, ahead of uh, ahead of the regional elections in Russia to make sure we um, we're working with sort of the the most knowledgeable geeks we can find ahead of ahead of them. Um, so that's exciting. Should we do the news? Yes, let's jump in. Um, so this is a follow up to to the. This huge scandal um, that we've discussed already on last week's episode in regards to uh, the former Irish um, commissioner. So following the resignation of uh, Phil Hogan, Ireland now has a new commissioner. But as expected, um, it does not retain the trade portfolio. So um, early on Tuesday, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced that first vice president of the European Parliament, Marriott McGuinness, will be the new commissioner of Ireland and the EU Commission's executive VP, Valdis Dobrovskis, will be taking over the all-important trade portfolio. McGuinness will be tasked with the financial stability, financial services and capital markets union portfolio, which until now was part of Dobrovskis' remit. All this is, of course, a result of what must be the biggest ever golf-related political scandal in Europe, at least this decade. Um, as you remember from last week, the creme de la creme of, uh, of Irish um, political society um, all met up um, at a golfing resort, very much um, flaunting the country's uh, own COVID restrictions, which led to Hogan's resignation. So by the start of this week, predictions on the EU's new trade commissioner had coalesced around Dubrovsky's name, as von der Leyen was keen to both keep this key portfolio in experienced hands, but also in the hands of the European People's Party, um, which she also uh, represents. And the reports were proven right in the end. On the Irish front, von der Leyen had asked, and she received, uh, the names of both a woman and a man um, as nominees. And that was... Marriott McGuinness, who ended up uh, getting the spot, who's been an Irish MEP for 16 years, representing Fine Gael, uh, as well as a man called Andrew McDowell, who's um, also a Fine Gael advisor, who up until not long ago was a VP of the European Investment Bank. Fine Gael is, of course, affiliated with the European People's Party in the EU Parliament. On to Latvia. On to Latvia, where in the Latvian capital city, elections were taking place this week, as we covered in our previous episode, where the incumbent coalition uh, lost their seats to an electoral alliance composed by liberals and social democrats in an election that redrew Riga's politics, perhaps for good, 
the winning coalition formed by development or four and the progressives achieved 26.16% of the popular vote, while the office holders centre-left Harmony and the local party honoured to serve Riga gathered 24.61%, losing 15% of their previous municipal seats. In order to form a new city government, a majority of 31 or more seats is necessary. There's currently an agreement on the table set up by the two victorious parties with the collaboration of the centre-right New Conservative Party and New Unity and the National Alliance Latvian Association of Regions. Martin Stakis from Development 4 is expected to assume the mayorship with Linda Ozola from the New Conservative Party and Edvard Schmiltens from the Latvian Association of Regions as vice mayors. So now let's quickly touch on Brexit. It's been a while, but it's back. Um, with less than four months until the United Kingdom's transition period um, with the EU expires, much is now pointing to the country leaving the Union without a trade deal in place. Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the Conservative Party has said that his government is ready to accept such a situation if there isn't a breakthrough in negotiations between now and October 15, when he's scheduled to meet all EU leaders in Brussels. The deadlock of the negotiations uh, very basically boils down to neither the EU nor the UK wanting to give in uh, on the issues of state aid or fisheries. Um, so in the coming months, I'm sure we'll be talking about this more and more, Ewan. Um, so yeah, buckle up. Brexit never goes away. It's always there, <laughs> yeah. watching us from a distance. Uh, and from two sides, not managing to agree, we go to two sides that somehow have managed to agree. We're talking about Serbia and Kosovo, who have made a joint announcement stating that they'll be normalising their economic ties following a two-day negotiation led by the United States. Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic and Kosovo's Prime Minister Abdullah Hoti both called the decision to create a unified economic zone a huge step forward after decades of violent conflict between the nations following the breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in 2008 and is currently recognised by 113 UN states, including a majority of EU member states. The new agreements are presented as a great success for the Trump administration, which sees its biggest achievement as being Kosovo's recognition of Israel for the first time, and Belgrade moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. However, critics have said that the content of the agreements does not actually progress Serbia-Kosovo ties, and the EU has voiced serious concern and regret over Serbia's commitment to move its embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, as the EU still very much supports a two-state solution for the Israel-Palestine conflict. So now to some very concerning uh, news out of Greece. Um, today, where a major overnight fire swept through its largest refugee camp um, on the island of Lesbos, uh, the camp holding more than 12,000 refugees and migrants uh, had previously been placed under COVID-19 lockdown. Um, the refugees um, fled the overcrowded Memoria camp on the island, uh, which was originally meant to house around two to 3,000 people, um, and it was left severely damaged um, by the fire. Uh, the government in Greece is planning to turn camps on Lesbos and other islands uh, into closed centres, uh, and the EU Home Affairs Commissioner Ilva Johansson um, from Sweden, she represents um, the SND group um, in the European Parliament, uh, she's agreed to finance the transfer of uh, 400 unaccompanied teenagers and children onto the mainland. It is yet unclear how the fire started and uh, how this will influence the, the overall debate on 
um, the EU's uh, migration policy going forward. Finally, we go to Montenegro, where since our last episode, the Montenegrins headed to the polls for parliamentary elections, which saw the historically dominant DPS affiliated with the SND drop to their lowest vote share ever at 35.1%. National Conservative ZBCG, which is affiliated with the Europe of Conservatives and Reformists, rose to 32.5%. The closeness of this election has meant that the opposition parties have been able to unite to win a majority in the Montenegrin parliament without DPS being involved, leading to incumbent Prime Minister Milo Dukanovic conceding defeat on September the 1st. The proposed government agreement of ZBCG, centre-right MJNN and Green URA will see the new government in Montenegro implementing all its international commitments including cooperating with NATO, recognizing Kosovo, and working on EU succession. This democratic transition of power away from the Democratic Party of Socialists is a massive step for the small nation, which has been pretty much ruled by Milo Dukanovic for the last 30 years. With me now is Philip Rudnick, a Poland-based freelance journalist uh, covering the post-Soviet sphere. Um, he's just joined our new Russia election team that's been put together ahead of the coming regional elections in the country on 13th of September, so this coming weekend. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Philip. Oh, thank you, Gabriel. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to, to have you and the whole team uh, pulled together. It's great to have so many dedicated, knowledgeable people to, to share all this information with, with our followers. Um, I just wanted to start off because I am... Um, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners and a lot of people around Europe um, aren't, um, aren't aware of what's happening this weekend. So can you just give an overview of what, what are these elections uh, and um, what do you think we should be looking out for? Okay, so uh, these are regional elections, as you've, as you've properly mentioned. And we've got several levels of these elections coming up. Uh, We've got like four by-elections to the state Duma. So for so in the in those constituencies, we've got uh, a new uh, MPs being chosen, being elected. Then we've got regional elections for uh, governor heads, like regional heads. Then we've got the regional uh, regional Dumas, so regional parliaments, about eleven of them, and we've got a, the lowest subnational level. Uh, in the Russian system, so the municipal uh, elections. Actually, as for the regional elections that aren't that covered in the Western media or even in Russia, but I think the uh, I think the relevance of them is pretty pretty high, as we have seen um, for the for the last two years. In 2018, the protest the protest vote vote was so prevalent that it made it possible for some uh, governors, for some regional heads to win uh, with the candidates of the, of the ruling party of, United, of the United yeah. Russia. Uh, and last year in 2019, the um, Moscow regional elections to the Moscow City Duma sparked an unrest. Uh, and then we had the summer protests in 2019. So yeah. I think like we shouldn't we, 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 sh we should always be aware of the fact that they do matter, the regional elections. 
obviously any election in 2020 is going to be impacted by COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so have these. Um, the period of voting has been extended, correct? How is this mm-hmm. shaping up? How is this impacting um, the election this weekend? Actually, uh, this, yeah, the, co- the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, impacted the whole, uh, the whole electoral system because already like for, for, uh, for to start with, it has delayed the constitutional, constitutional referendum that we had in Russia. It was scheduled on April but it happened in July, if I'm not mistaken. And back then, they've already, they've, they've already uh, introduced an early voting, which we are witnessing right now in some, in some constituencies in Russia. They allowed people to vote uh, in an early voting manner. So, for instance, for the state Duma of Nizhny Novgorod, the, one of the regional capitals in Russia, uh, people can vote like starting from the 2nd of September, they started voting. And this procedure of early voting is very peculiar one, as it is hard to observe. And therefore the the election observers are um, forced to, if they want to, if they want to observe the elections properly, they need to be at the electoral polling station like for the whole period of time so i guess it's like seven days or even more i think more and therefore the yeah it gives it gives quite a free hand in terms of rigging the elections because due to the fact that there is no uh there's no observers at these at the stations and i i just looked up uh on some data uh on it and it's quite it's it's quite interesting because uh, in one constituency, from this early voting procedure, 10% of the voters from that constituency has already voted, have already oh, voted. Okay. So it's quite a high number, and it raises some concerns. Let's let's put it this so, way. Yeah, I guess let's just bring it to basics. Obviously, Russia is um, is an authoritarian country. It's ranked as that um, yes. in most comparisons. There is obviously. Um, a lot of questions about elections in Russia since quite a long time now about legitimacy, vote rigging. Um, mm-hmm. So that's obviously something to keep in mind for anyone in any um, authoritarian system where you have elections that aren't free. A main way of stopping people from from taking part in them is uh, muddling the, the registration system. Mm-hmm. We obviously saw it in, in Belarus as well ahead of the recent uh, quote-unquote elections there. Uh, so can you just go through how how this has impacted uh, these elections? Well, the, 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 the impact of it is significant in, in every election, every regional elections in Russia. Uh, so we got a very, very peculiar, um, let's put it this way, uh, a tool mm-hmm. uh, to register, to re- register or non-registered candidates and it's called the municipality filter uh, actually it was it was introduced in 2000, 2012 uh, during last months of uh, Medvedev's tenure and it was a uh, part of his broad amendments to the electoral law 
that were about to liberalize the the political system so mm -hmm. yeah among them there was this municipal filter and if it, it works this way that if someone wants to register himself or herself as a, a candidate to the uh, in the elections for the regional head so as a as a as a as a governor for instance mm -hmm. um, he or she needs to collect a, a fixed percent or fixed number fixed amount of uh, uh, signatures from the uh, municipal uh, appointees for from the rep representatives of the municipal uh, units and the thing is that plus there is also a requirement that those signatures have to uh, cover uh, have to cover a certain percent of all like of all the uh, municipal units I mean that if we got for instance 100 of municipal units in in a city then a candidate needs to collect uh, collect the signatures from 75% of them so to okay. cover to, to cover the uh, the area of the town quite evenly uh, but the thing is that of course uh, given the fact that the majority is constituted by the United Russia, therefore their representatives of that party would not would be really reluctant to uh, sign for an oppositional oppos oppositional candidate, and it's also a kind of uh, is also a kind of double-edged sword, if uh, that's the correct use of that term. But anyways. Uh, uh because for instance uh, oppositional candidate they have a certain electoral group that react pretty bad in any kind of bargaining or negotiating with uh with the representatives of the of of the regime therefore asking them to sign uh their ballot lists to in order to get registered uh it would be uh, it would it, it, it would it would be seen with some kind of um, suspicion from the side of the from the side of the yeah. from the side of the voters that what what the heck why are you bargaining with them why are you asking them to vote to to to, to sign to, to sign your list uh, from them if they are the representatives of those of the oppress of the oppressor but anyways, yeah, that makes that's sense. the reality, yeah. Yeah, so just to wrap up, so obviously I think what we get most attention uh, this weekend are these sort of more well-developed protest movements. Uh, I'm sure media across Europe will tie it in some way to Navalny. Mm -hmm. uh, but just for our listeners, what, do, what should they look out for you know, if there are just one or two things that you think will be the highlights uh, that we should, that no one should miss, what, what will that be? Because obviously it's a bit overwhelming just looking at the list of all these elections mm -hmm. across the country. Um, I mean, as, as, as you touched upon Navalny, I would say that it's certainly, it will be covered by the Western media and that, that could be also interesting development to observe. This is the fact how his uh, idea of the smart voting, so this kind of uh, digital platform where you can register, and Navalny's team is uh, considering 
where you live, where is your place of residency in Russia, they will uh, give you a candidate that they will choose a candidate for you. Uh, at least they will recommend that. Um, with the, the candidate with the biggest likelihood that he or she will win and overtake the position from the, from the, Uni from the United Russia. So, but the question here is, the, the, the open question here is, the f is whether, how this smart voting system will work without Navalny's presence. Because of course, as we all know, he's currently in Germany um, undergoing a treatment but the fact, but his team is still in Russia, right? And they, 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 they still uh, circulate in the, in the, on the, on the internet, the, the smart voting system. So yeah. we should be aware of it. Uh, and yeah, what else? I think also those, how those local hotspots of protests that I've, that we've already mentioned, how they will impact the how they will impact the voting. Well, thank you so much for both thank coming you, on the podcast, but also you know all the hard work you're all putting into uh, preparing for the coverage this weekend. It'll be super interesting to see all these results come in. Any reports on uh, you know events this weekend, and also to see the, you know the aftermath on how it might impact both within Russia the the sort of um, uh, position of uh, united russia and putin's support uh, across the oblasts and also of course what what it will mean in terms of how the rest of the world uh, sees them and, and reacts um oh, so yeah. yeah thank you very much and everyone that's listening do do keep an eye out in your feeds for all this brilliant um coverage coming up okay thank you Are you listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on any other platform that allows for reviews? Please drop us a review if so, and why not make it five stars if you think we're worth it? It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for us. Also, if you like our podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and of course tell people about us and share our episodes with family and friends. If you have an idea for a segment, any thoughts on topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi to us, please shoot us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. I know many of you will be waiting with bated breath to hear our next On the Flip Side segment, but this week we bring you something slightly different, and that is a very special visit to Matthew's History Corner, hosted by our very good friend, Matthew Nicholson, friend of the podcast, who's going to be here to shine a light on an election you perhaps might not have heard of. Matthew, where are you taking us? Hello, yes, and welcome to the inaugural History Corner. So each section, we will take you back to an election or a vote of times past, shine a light on historical developments, and perhaps help us to make sense of elections today. So for our first election, we are staying in the 21st century, looking back 10 years to 2010. As the European debt crisis worsened, the Australian Labour Party won re-election, and volcanic activity in Iceland cancelled flights across the European continent, voters in Moldova prepared to vote in a referendum on whether to reintroduce direct elections for the country's president. After gaining independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, Moldova held two direct presidential elections in 1991 and 1996. 
From 2001, following a constitutional amendment, Moldova began indirectly electing its presidents through a vote in the national parliament, with the requirement that a successful candidate must secure 60% of the parliament's support. This system worked well at first, electing Vladimir Voronin of the left-wing Party of Communists for two successive terms. However, this system of indirect election came under quite a bit of strain in 2009, when the recently re-elected Party of Communists fell short of this 60% majority by one vote. The deadlock continued, even after a snap parliamentary election was held, bringing to power a pro-European coalition which still lacked the required 60% of seats needed to elect a new president. According to the Moldovan constitution, although the presidency is not particularly powerful, snap elections were required to be held every year until a president could be elected. To break this impasse, the new government sought a return to the directly elected presidency. But as it lacked the numbers to pass a constitutional amendment through the parliament, a referendum was called for the 5th of September 2010. This referendum was rejected by the Party of Communists, now in opposition, who called for a boycott in the hope of bringing turnout below the required 33% for the referendum to pass. In the event, uh, when voters went to polls, the proposal was approved by 88% of those who turned out, but due to the boycott and general apathy, only 30% of the electorate actually turned out to vote, which was three percentage points short of the threshold. This ensured the failure of the referendum. So rather than solve the constitutional crisis, the referendum simply added an extra layer to it. The Moldovan constitution prevented the issue being brought back for another referendum for an additional two years. So amending the constitution was no longer an option for escaping the crisis. A third election, three months later, increased the governing coalition's majority, but it still fell two seats short of the 60% required to elect a president and escape the cycle. Only in early 2012 would the parliament finally elect independent Nikolai Timofti to the presidency, with the support of three members of the Party of Communists. Ironically, in 2016, Moldova's constitutional court would rule the original amendment ending direct presidential elections as being unconstitutional, which led the way to popularly elected presidents once again. This has ensured then that Moldovan governments can now govern securely if they fall short of this 60% majority, bringing an end to this constitutional quirk, which caused so much political chaos. The crisis around the referendum also contributed to a realignment in Moldovan politics, as the Party of Communists' obstructionist attitude was viewed by many voters as contributing to the crisis. In subsequent elections, it would be replaced by the Party of Socialists as the leading left-wing Eurosceptic party. And as an interesting note to end on, Igor Dodon, the first president to be directly elected in 2016 using the revived system, happened to be one of the three Party of Communist members who broke from the party in 2012 to help end the deadlock. So although this brought an end to his membership of the Party of Communists, you could say it paid off for him in the end. While some seem to think that Europe elects is an institution of the European Union, we aren't. We are a private organisation run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors, and we are only able to do what we do because of our supporters and donors. Everything we do, this podcast, our website, our Twitter account, and other social media are all done because of supporters like those on Patreon. As a Patreon subscriber, you don't just get to support us, you also get access to exclusive discussions, special content, and more. Access all of that from as little as one euro a month. Head to our Patreon and subscribe. 
Hi, everyone. So with me now to discuss uh, the upcoming regional elections across Russia this, this coming weekend uh, is Henry Foy, who's the Moscow Bureau Chief at the Financial Times. Hi, Henry. Hi, good afternoon. Hi. Um, thank you so much for, for speaking to us, to us about this, about, you know, these regional elections that even for us who cover them are quite overwhelming, quite broad. It's this process going uh, going on all over Russia, uh, but I guess in one way it's uh, uh, sort of taking the temperature on the state of Russian uh, democracy, which is obviously very weak, and the stature of, of Putin in the face of multiple um, protest movements around the country. Um, and you wrote a piece about this, um, naturally, um, for the Financial Times this week. Um, and what do you think observers, sort of amateur observers from across Europe, how should we look at these elections? Should we look at them as, as a test of Putin? Or is, it, is the authoritarian nature of Russia at this moment so strong that it won't really matter? That's a great question. I mean, just to kick off, I mean, this Russia is a, is a vast country, as you know, there's 80, 85 different uh, uh, regions, uh, which include three cities, multiple oblasts, yeah. the list goes on. Now, elections are going to go on in 82 of those, uh, and therefore all sorts of different things. You, you've got local governors being elected, who are the sort of the, the city mayors or the chief of, of sometimes enormous, enormous regions the size of uh, small countries or, or medium countries. Uh, some some local parliaments, so that's the regional parliament that runs that 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 region. Some for city governments, uh, the capital cities of the regions, and also some by-elections for the federal parliament in in Moscow. Now, a lot of people uh, responding to me on social media actually over the last few days to my piece have said, "Well, this is ridiculous, Russia. We all know Russia doesn't have a democracy." Now, that's not exactly true. Uh, yes, it is true that Mr. Putin wins the elections that he holds uh, and has never uh, suffered a defeat at the ballot box. But the regions have been areas where the political machine of Vladimir Putin and his party, United Russia, has stumbled. Um, the most obvious was two years ago in uh, a region called Khabarovsk, which is in the Far yeah. East, uh, close to the border with North Korea, uh, that uh, unexpectedly forced the uh, Putin-appointed governor into a runoff, uh, which he then lost two weeks later to the opposition candidate uh, from uh, 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 in that region. So the governor of, of that state uh, was then was then a non-Putin uh, choice, mm -hmm. and uh, recently he was uh, arrested, uh, stood down, bundled into the back of a car, put on an airplane to Moscow, uh, uh, and locked in jail on 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 murder charges dating back around. Uh, uh, a lot historical. Let's call them historical charges. <laughs> now, 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 the people of Habarovsk have, have reacted uh, with mass indignation, and since then there have been protests every single day. So we're we're we're, we're past two months now of consecutive protests, uh, with people saying that this is not fair. That that we chose this man, and even if he's a criminal, uh, we believe he should remain in office and be tried here in Habarovsk. Yeah. Uh, uh, in courts that we trust certainly more than than, than one in Moscow. 
Now that's just one example of 85 regions. And <laughs> yes, it's not true that everyone in Russia wants to vote out their United Russia governor and, and get an opposition candidate. But it is a very interesting sign of two things. The first is that yes, there is democracy in Russia. And if the United Russia machine gets things wrong, miscalculates, misunderstands the level of populist uh, opinion, they can lose key jobs. Yeah. And secondly, it shows that there is there is desire amongst people to vote for non-United Russia candidates if they believe that they can win. What regions do you think um, are the ones to watch in, in, in that respect? Uh, looking at this week, and obviously there's a long list of of elections and our dedicated Russia team are working super hard to try and cover as much of it as possible. But for, for the most of us, we'll probably just have the time and, um, and resource to, to focus on a few. So what should those be? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the ones that really matter are the, the, the elections for the local governors, the, the, the executive head of the region, mm -hmm. and the regional parliaments. Uh, now, 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 those two types of elections are happening in 23 regions. Some regions are holding both those two elections on the same day. Yeah. Now, th these really matter because they have essentially executive power and, 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 and the ability to, to take in money and things like that. So, so these are the ones we really should care about. Now, of those 23, I would say there are five that, that are worth watching. Um, and all of them are, are interesting, not specifically because of anti-Putin or anti-United Russia feeling, but I'm happy to talk about that later, but more on, on locally specific irritation. Now, the first two are Akhengelsk and Komi, which are two regions uh, abutting each other next to each other in the north of Western Russia. And for two years now, there's been a, a big environmental movement in both those states, uh, protesting against a landfill that is, uh, that as of about a month ago, was being constructed in a small town called Shiaz, uh, uh, which is roughly on, it's actually inside Arhangelsk, but it's roughly on the border between the two states. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it's basically an abandoned town. It's a train station. And Russia decided this was a good place to build a landfill, a massive landfill. Now, what makes it controversial is that that landfill is for rubbish from Moscow. It, so it's literally the incarnation of the rich capital where all the politicians sit, sending their trash into someone else's backyard. And, and this backyard is, a, is, is forest. It's an environmentally uh, cherished area. And it naturally upset people. Now, there are environmental uh, campaigns all across Russia, but this one really caught a nerve with local people who, um, who, who rallied behind the green movement and have been protesting en masse for a long, long time. Now, that has already resulted in the uh, changing of governors in both those two states uh, uh, in, in the last year. Um, now, now, this is something I should add. Mr. Putin has the power to appoint governors, to hire and fire them, but they then must pass a public vote uh, after they've been appointed. They become acting governors before they're elected in. So it's sort of a, sort of a, a, a dual system. Now, in these two states, there isn't yet enough uh, support, if you like, for this environmental movement that's, that's, that's above 50%, that will definitely defeat the two, the two Putin appointees who go to the ballot on Sunday. However, if they are able to force a runoff, you then could have a very different situation. And this is really the key in all the governor's races. What the opposition want is to get to a runoff. Because what that basically says is that this governor does not have 50% representation. Now, in addition to those two states, there's also Novosibirsk uh, in, in, 
southern Siberia. Um, very important region, the capital, also called Novosibirsk, is a hugely important industrial town, big, famous city in Russia. Another state where the governor could well be in trouble is Irkutsk, which is a region in eastern Siberia, uh, uh, made famous by uh, Lake Baikal, which which, which abuts the, the state. Now, there, there's quite a lot of local anger at the government's handling of massive floods that, uh, that, that, that last year killed dozens of people and left uh, thousands of people uh, homeless. Irkutsk already has um, oppositions controlling the regional government. So there is, there is evidence there that, that the people are not uh, pro-United Russia. And so there you could see the communist candidate uh, uh, the Communist Party candidate, sorry, de defeat the United Russia candidate uh, in the election. So, if any of those three were to uh, were to see the governorship fall into the hands of the uh, of opposition parties, that would be that would be a big step. I mean, it would show at least, as I said before, that democracy is alive, that that it's possible to defeat Putin's choices, and that United Russia has a problem now. It's, it's very hard to, to, to judge uh, on regional levels. The regional polls are very hard to come by. They're often not very trustworthy. And the ones that are done are done by the Kremlin and kept very secret um, for obvious reasons. Now, what we do know is that nationally, United Russia's popularity is at a record low. It's, it's at around 30, 31%. It's never been that low. Uh, at the last federal parliamentary election in 2016 they they won 50 around 55 percent of the vote so it's been a big fall for united russia and it has sparked soul searching inside that party as to how they should uh rebrand themselves restructure and sort of this is a little meta but there's there's a battle going on for control of the system if you like between the kremlin and united russia as, a, as an organization now it's a very typical thing in russia that the boss whether it's the boss of a company uh, the boss of a, a, of a regional administration or Mr. Putin himself, when he has a problem, he appoints two people to essentially do the same job and sees who beats the other one. This is a very typical practice in, in, in how, you, how you organize in Russia. And so inside the Kremlin, there's a man called Mr. Kirienko, who is Mr. Putin's, if you like, uh, regional uh, uh, mastermind who, who makes sure that all the, all the bits and pieces in the Russian Federation do what the Kremlin says. And then there's Mr. Volodin, who is in, in the parliament, who essentially is supposed to run United Russia. Now, you can see that there's, there's going to be problems there if you have a governor, who's a United Russia governor, who his boss is. Uh, because essentially the money is coming out of the Kremlin, but United Russia is run under the parliament. Yeah. So if United Russia lose, and depending on how big the losses are and where they lose, it will be a combination of two factors. It will be because of local discontent local upset at united russia and just general kind of anti-putin sort of 20 years people feeling dis disenfranchised disenchanted and a combination of the fact that that united russia the party situation on the ground in that region didn't pull their finger out didn't work hard enough weren't well organized because of the infighting inside the party because you know to be brutally honest about this united russia should win every single election no problem they control they pay the wages of the soldiers the teachers, the, the nurses, and everyone who works at a state-run company. So if you can't get those people on buses to the ballots 
box on Sunday morning and get them to vote for United Russia, you've got a problem. And that's normally a problem of organization more than popularity. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering as well is how, how will Putin react to, to these results? Like say that there is a huge upset, a huge outpour of anti-Kremlin voting and, and support. Is there sort of a, a limit for Putin, do you think, where, um, where he sort of feel, will have to react aggressively? Or do you think he's in such a weak position that even if he has that wave of discontent come at him, he'll just have to accept it quietly, maybe especially after seeing how, how it went in Belarus when, when Lukashenko lashed out at protesters and the discontent there? Yeah, look, I think it's important to, to not lose sight of the fact that Putin is still very popular. Uh, and in in votes where Putin's name is on the ballot, uh, rather than United Russia or a United Russia candidate, he wins no problem. And, and I believe full-heartedly in the results, uh, winning or losing. I think obviously there's a lot of massaging of numbers, um, but Putin is still popular enough to win a, a straight vote on the presidency. And so I don't think he needs to worry about his position. What he does need to worry about is how United Russia will fare next year in the parliamentary elections. Because while the Kremlin holds the cards and, and calls the shots, the parliament is still very important uh, for the national security role that it provides and the way that it selects vast numbers of officials all across the Russian regime. And the new constitution that, that Putin uh, passed this year strengthens the role of parliament. So it would seem a gross political miscalculation for Putin to have strengthened the parliament that then he lost control of. Now, United Russia right now has a supermajority in the federal uh, parliament, the Duma. And so I think for Putin, if he was to see, or if his technologist in the Kremlin were to see a wave of anti-United Russia uh, sentiment on, in the elections on Sunday, and of course they will get much more granular data than anybody uh, in the public will see, that will spark even greater concern than there is currently about how United Russia is perceived and what needs to be done to ensure that it's in no doubt that they will continue their supermajority uh, after the 2021 federal elections next uh, in September next year. I guess finally, I, I like to, to, to round off by talking about how Western European both media, but also sort of top politicians are looking at this and how will they be reporting this? Obviously, recent weeks or the past month um, with the whole Navalny affair, it, once again, sort of the, the, you know, the anti-Russia sentiment and rhetoric is once again at sort of feverish levels. It feels like it sort of ebbs and flows, but we're seeing more and more of those peaks. Will, do you think a defeat in these elections will be used politically by, by Western Europe? Or are people not paying attention? I mean, look, it's, it's, there's no doubt that there will, be a that there will not be a defeat here for United Russia. There may well be individual losses. Uh, and those losses could well be relative. It could be getting, if you get four or five governors forced into a runoff, 
I would see that as a victory for the opposition. They might not win the governorships, but they will prove a point uh, on, a, on a local level. Um, with regards the anti-Russia rhetoric, uh, I think it's important to um, distinguish between uh, political rhetoric directed at the Kremlin and political rhetoric directed at the Russian people. Uh, and I think there's very little of, little of the latter. And this would be, this election is, is the people's choice. And so I don't think it would, it would necessarily influence what's being said currently with regards to Belarus and Mr. Navalny. Uh, what's key though is that this would be a chance to demonstrate that there is uh, some form of opposition in Russia. And so a European response may well be along the lines of seeking to support that, um, though the Kremlin has been incredibly vocal in cracking down on any attempts by foreign powers to try to build any kind of relationship with the opposition. And my final point is that, and I perhaps should have made this right at the start, these opposition parties are not in the classic sense opposition parties. Uh, Mr. Navalny represents what's called the non-systemic opposition. These are unsanctioned, uh, continually harassed uh, campaigners who seek to uh, um, expose the levels of corruption and, and, and crime and misdeeds uh, perpetrated by the administration. The opposition parties we're talking about here, the Communist Party, LDPR, a just Russia are the systemic opposition. They are on a sliding scale between created and controlled by the Kremlin to tolerated by, and all three of them lie on that on that spectrum. Now, what's interesting though is that while they can very rarely stand up to Putin in Moscow in the federal parliament, they have shown that in regional uh, uh, chambers and in regional executive offices, they do take a, a very oppositionist stand. Um, and so just because one of these parties gets elected, it doesn't mean that the Kremlin still controls that area. And the entire Putin system revolves around tight control. And Putin's, yeah. um, Putin's political uh, mantra, basically, since he arrived in the Kremlin, has been to centralize power. That's probably the simplest way of putting to put all the Putin policies in one box. Yeah. Uh, he's taken a lot of power away from the regional governments and the governors, and basically money flows from the regions to Moscow in the form of taxes and other levies. And then Putin dishes it out uh, with orders back to the regions. So if United Russia were to lose more and more of these regions, it would demonstrate a fracturing of that system of control that is based upon one man calling the shots and everybody else who follows the orders essentially being beholden to him. Um, and even if some of these systemic opposition parties were to take control, that would still disrupt that system. And so should be seen as a victory, if you like, for some form of democracy in Russia. Yeah. Well, not, I guess, quite positive note. <laughs> when uh, yeah. it's not often you, you end on a positive note when, when discussing um, elections and politics in Russia. Um, or anywhere, Christ, democracy destroyed yeah. so much that we've, anyway. Yeah, well, thank you on that note then. Thank you so much for, for speaking to us and for following us. Um, and um, hopefully we'll speak again at some point later.
thank you for listening to the UFLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at europelex.eu um, and at europelex across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at europe underscore lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenwin. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas, and the producer and audio engineers were Rafael Penurios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, which is Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, and Guillem Pereira Resende. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything was only possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Brilliant. Cool. I'm going to stop recording.